Hello, welcome to this week's Wireless Noodle. Uh, this week I'm going to be talking about Google and whether it has a trust issue. Also, on the subject of hyperscalers, a rather important announcement at Amazon. And I also want to delve into the world of robotic process automation, which is a fascinating topic. My name is Matt Hatton. This is The Wireless Noodle, your weekly guide to the impact of disruptive new technologies on business. I've been talking recently quite a lot about AWS and a little bit about Amazon more broadly. And now Andy Jassy, who featured a little bit in some of the discussions around AWS, who was the CEO of AWS, has now been promoted to head up Amazon in the wake of Jeff Bezos's kind of retirement. Good appointment. Jassy for me has got absolutely the right attitude of constant reinvention and improvement that's likely to keep the Amazon juggernaut rolling. But I think he's going to find the big challenges in the future aren't really necessarily to do with those internal factors, but more to do with the politics of running such a, a big and important organisation. And in fact, the sheer importance of Amazon to the supply chain in many countries has been amply demonstrated during this COVID pandemic. And we've got things coming like drone delivery. I've been doing some work on drones recently, and it's pretty interesting to look at how the regulations have changed literally just in the last couple of months in both the EU and the US. And that's, I think, a precursor for a lot more interesting stuff happening with, with drone delivery. So you've got regulatory issues like that. You've got changing dynamics in the market. A lot of this becomes quite political. Now, what's not clear exactly is how well he'll be able to deal with those kinds of things. So, you know, he's demonstrated he's pretty damn good at running an organisation that needs to change and adapt and develop new products and, and so on. But cloud computing is not a particularly political thing at the moment, although it is arguably critical national infrastructure. Now, that said, it's not entirely clear how well Bezos would have dealt with either of those things. So an interesting inbox, I would suggest, for, for Andy Jassy when he arrives as, as CEO of Amazon. Uh, but he's demonstrated himself to be a, a capable character. The interesting thing, one of the things that seems to have uh, exercised the uh, commentators on, on Amazon is the extent to which uh, this appointment implies that there's a rising importance of AWS within Amazon. Now, don't get me wrong. It is important, of course. Uh, good revenue growth, successful business unit and all that. But I think that Jassy's appointment to be the head of Amazon is more to do with him doing a good job of running that than it is particularly to do with the importance of AWS within the organisation. What he has been doing is, to all intents and purposes, running a separate business unit, which is more or less what AWS is. Does it change the emphasis that Amazon should or will put on AWS? I have no reason to believe that it will. Now, I don't really want to go over all the AWS stuff that I talked about the other week. Today, in fact, I want to focus on another of the hyperscalers, which is Google.
Google Cloud has a trust issue. And it's a trust issue related to the fact that it keeps on shutting down products, typically consumer products. But it would make anybody on the enterprise side of things think twice. Anyone choosing their products for critical systems might be concerned. The starting point when you think about Google is that they want to be seen as a diversified technology company. In that, they have maybe 1% or 2% market share. What they don't want to be thought of is just a search ad company for which they have, what, 80% market share. And many of the wacky things that they do and investments it makes are aimed at portraying it as a diversified tech company. And as a result, it doesn't really matter if it succeeds or fails. We've seen numerous examples where products or services or companies that they own have been allowed to fail. Uh, Back in an earlier podcast where I was talking about the book, The Internet of Things Myth, I talked about a company called Revolve, whose smart home products were shut down by Google immediately after it bought them, or pretty soon after it bought them. There's other examples like Stadia and Google Health and a bunch of others. Most recently, it dumped Loon, which was its plan to provide connectivity with hot air balloons in the upper atmosphere. It might sound crazy. It might have worked. It didn't really matter to Google whether it did or not. The question for me, though, is does allowing those companies or products or projects to fail have a negative effect on its brand image when it comes to other parts of the business? In particular, does it have a knock-on effect for Google Cloud? Now, clearly it doesn't have an impact on its core search business, but it might have for other enterprise services, and specifically ones which enterprises come to rely on. I wrote a report recently on Google's rather thin portfolio of products aimed at enterprise digital transformation. Now, these products are typically critical systems for any company that is adopting them. Would you, as an enterprise, trust in Google Cloud or using Google Workspace? Or maybe some of the smaller initiatives like Contact Center AI? Or would you surmise that maybe Google will also get bored with those as well? Now, it could be that I'm overthinking this. Why would it ditch cloud computing? It, of course, probably won't. Mostly because it's rather inseparable from what it does as core business. It's a nice little sideline. But what about the enhancements layered on top of the cloud? Well, who knows? Workspace, which is what used to be G Suite, email, calendar, storage and so on, maybe it would. If you look at what it did with Google Photos, it decided to start charging a fee for storage. Now, it's hard to say that it's unreasonable charging a fee for those kinds of services, but it does point to Google being happy to chop and change offerings. And what about even more specialist capabilities, which end up proving to be unprofitable? Companies are investing lots of money to base their customer care on something like Google's contact center AI. Now, that's not core business for Google. Might they get bored? Maybe. Or you look at its Looker acquisition, which deals with enterprise data analytics and visualization. It's very easy to see a company embedding those capabilities into its systems, only for them to be switched off. The point is that Google can't have it both ways. If it's a diversified technology conglomerate, it has to expect that the way it treats some of its products will be perceived as how it might treat all of its products. 
I think it's got quite a bit of work to do to persuade the market that its products will be in there for the long term. Contrast this with AWS's announcements, for instance, things like long-term support, support free RTOS. Google Cloud needs some similar ways of reinforcing that it doesn't have its parents' predilection for switching things off. It's been hard to miss that in some of the announcements at recent events, Google Cloud executives have been very keen to stress how careful they are with what they do with the company's data. They've obviously recognised that as being a challenge for them and a reputational issue for them, and they've addressed it head on. What they haven't done yet is address this concept that they're happy to switch off product, and they're going to need to. Another thing from the Transformer Insights team since last we spoke is that we published a new report looking at robotic process automation. I've talked about it a little bit as a topic in the past. What is robotic process automation? I hear you cry. Well, simply put, it is about automating assorted, relatively mundane business process tasks that are today undertaken manually on a PC. So how it might work is a particular task is observed by an intelligent agent, which then replicates that user behavior. That behavior might be open email, save file from email, open file, extract data, put data from said file into another file. Okay, pretty straightforward stuff, but typically something that may well have been a responsibility of an employee, but exactly the kind of repetitive task that you can get a bot to do. This is typically useful at removing friction between different enterprises' systems. For instance, an invoice from company X being processed by company Y. And typically it's used for accounting, customer care, various admin tasks. It's slightly more sophisticated than scripts and macros due to the observation and replication requirements. RPA is a small but critical element of digital transformation and one of the first ways that many enterprises will experience machine learning. And the key reason companies using RPA is clear. To automate IT-based tasks that would have previously been undertaken by a human. The aim is to increase accuracy of processes, save costs and improve productivity. One of the things that we did in the report was put together a forecast of how big we expect that market to be. Transformer Insights expects that RPA will generate about $1.2 billion of investment in 2020, growing to $13 billion in 2030, so more than a tenfold increase over the next decade. But that said, market growth peaks in 2027, even though actually total market value continues to grow throughout the forecast. Gradually, what we're seeing is a requirement for RPA, which is a brownfield technology, i.e. it's trying to replicate what people do using the tools, using the PCs that people are using. So that brownfield requirement diminishes as alternative forms of native automation start to reduce the importance of retrofitting a solution for legacy practices. What I mean by that, an example. So a process for handling incoming invoices 
may well be replaced by a fully automated system with no need to replicate a human's activities. In 2025, we're expecting the professional, scientific and technical business segment, which includes legal and accounting businesses, the information and communication and finance and insurance sectors to be the biggest three. Now, these three are today in the vanguard of adopters using RPA to streamline core processes, particularly related to document handling. By 2030, the manufacturing sector will have overtaken these others to be the biggest sector, accounting for about 19% of the market. This shift reflects mostly the size of the manufacturing sector, which accounts for 17% of the world's economy. Effectively, it's manufacturing catching up. But there's another trend going on, which is that those early adopter sectors, the professional, scientific and technical, ICT, finance and insurance, will increasingly be making use of alternative automation capabilities. It should be noted also that the use cases are overwhelmingly not specific to the vertical. For instance, relating to invoicing, document processing or data management, which is maybe not quite as immediately relevant to manufacturing, but still very relevant. Where are we going to see it take off? Most active region for RPA is North America which will account for about 35% of the global spend in 2030. Today, though, it's 50%. Europe in 2030 is going to be 26%. China, 17%. Japan, with only a tenth of the population of China, will be 9%. Very high adoption in Japan relative to its size. The dynamic is quite clear. Markets with more entrenched low automation IT systems will have a greater requirement for these brownfield RPA solutions. As well as the forecast, the report we published also looks at some key use cases, including the likes of, and I've talked about a few of these, accounting, administration, customer care, HR, and the experiences of companies that have adopted RPA based on the analysis that we've done hundreds of deployments from our best practice and vendor selection database. And we also go on to look at the likely evolution of the market. The latter topic is critical. As I noted earlier, RPA is typically applied only to legacy systems. As greater process automation is introduced to IT systems, the requirement for this retrofit brownfield version inevitably diminishes. Similarly, there's only a limited number of processes to be replaced. And inevitably, RPA will eventually become redundant. This is, of course, bad news for all those RPA vendors out there. And there are many with some sky-high valuations. What we're going to have to see is a shift to focus on tasks that require more creative problem solving through greater use of machine learning. This is something known as intelligent automation or cognitive RPA. That's something that we'll have to wait for a future podcast. Just a reminder, if you are enjoying the podcast, I would be obliged if you could leave a review. It is much appreciated. In the next episode, I'm going to be unwrapping a couple of pieces of interesting news that we at Transformer Insights have been directly involved with. I promised that a few weeks ago and I'm finally able to actually talk about it. 
So I'm looking forward to sharing more about that in the next podcast. I hope you can join me. Links to some of the research that I've been referring to in this week's show, as well as the transcript of the recording, will be available on the podcast website at wirelessnoodle.com. Thank you for joining me. I've been Matt Hatton, and you've been listening to The Wireless Noodle. Thank you for listening to The Wireless Noodle. If you'd like to learn more about the research that I do on IoT, AI, and more, you can follow me on Twitter at Matty Hatton, and you can check out transformerinsights.com. That's transformer with an A.